Hello and welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. Every Thursday, we go to the source of the story to open up the work behind beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation in the media. I'm your host, Charlie, and today I'm bringing in a paper about terraforming Mars. I'm your other host, James. I haven't read about terraforming Mars, so I've got plenty of questions for you, Charlie. All in due time, James. So both of us are PhD students who read lots of papers for our own research. So this podcast is our way of sharing our love for science with anyone else who wants to learn about discoveries affecting all of us. Where are the paper boys? So, Charlie, you mentioned today's paper is about terraforming Mars. I know there's been a lot in the news about this, but would you care to enlighten us a little bit what this is about? Yeah, so I think first we should cover what it, what does terraforming mean? That's a great place to start. So terraforming refers to making a certain planet's environment more like the Earth's. Okay, like terra, yes. Earth? Terraforming. So, yeah. And specifically, what gets a lot of attention these days and actually for a while now is terraforming Mars. So trying to change Mars's atmosphere to become more like what we experience here on Earth. So Mars's atmosphere is mostly made of carbon dioxide, which is poisonous to humans. And the pressure of that carbon dioxide is only about 1% of what we experience here on Earth. So even if we could breathe it, there wouldn't be enough for us to actually breathe outside. Okay. It's not sounding like a super great home. No, these are all things that make it a pretty bad place for humans. And so the idea would be that we could affect change on a global scale that would make that atmosphere more hospitable to humans that would eventually live there. That, okay, on a global scale, that sounds like a pretty big undertaking. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as you can imagine, it's not like an easy thing. This isn't like uh, a quick, hey, honey, Headed to Home Depot to terraform the backyard. Just going to go get my, my terraforming pump. Yeah. Be home by dinner. You grab the popcorn. <laughs> yeah. And maybe we can hang out at that beach on Mars, you know, take a little break. Yeah, no. So it, and that's what this paper is actually going to be about, is sort of assessing whether it's even possible to do this, which, I mean, at first instinct, you kind of think, no, it's obviously not possible, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds very hard. Yeah, so we'll we'll get there on on whether that's the appropriate reaction. Okay. Before we dive into it, I have one question. Okay. Call me a dummy, but why Mars? Why not Venus? Why not I mean Jupiter doesn't sound super hospitable, like there isn't even land to land on. But I think it's a good a logical question. Why Mars, not Venus? That is a good question actually. I think that the reason why we look to Mars as a place for humans to live is that it's roughly the same size as Earth. So if we were to live there, the gravity would only, the gra- it would actually be less gravity. It's, I think it's about 40% or so of Earth's gravity. So people could live there very easily. You'd be bouncing around. You'd actually have a lot of fun. I'm having fun already. <laughs> There's also a lot of elements found on Mars that can be converted into things that matter for us. So the regolith, which is what they call just all the soil that's on Mars, has a lot of important stuff in it which can be turned into metals and can be turned into rocket fuel, things that we can actually build structures out of and, and make use of while, if we were to live there. 
Okay, so it's already pretty abundant in some natural materials that we would need. Right, and also okay. given that the atmosphere is CO2, plants convert CO2 into oxygen, which humans breathe. And we know, and even without plants, we know how to turn CO2 into oxygen. So there's a lot of easy ways to say this is the place we want to live versus Venus. You've got this horrifically dense atmosphere. The temperature is like 800 degrees on the surface. If you were going to try to live on Venus, you'd have to build. I mean, literally, this is the ideas they talk about is building cities in the clouds. Like cities you'd be floating cloud. on a wow. big balloon. Kind of like in Star Wars, the cloud city. It, it's exactly like that. And those kinds of things are super infeasible. And then as you go further out in the solar system, it just gets too cold. You're yep. too far from the sun. So Mars is actually still sort of in that, I'm sure you've heard this term thrown on the Goldilocks zone. Mm-hmm. I believe that it's still just on the edge of that Goldilocks zone where there's enough heat coming from the sun that you can sustain living organisms and you're not so close to the sun that everything just gets totally irradiated. So it's like maybe the porridge isn't quite as warm. Yeah. Maybe it's not quite as tasty, but it's porridge. It'll it's, get you there. Yeah, it'll get you there. All right. Well, thanks. All right. Thank you for answering that initial question. So terraforming. So what were the news headlines that you saw about this? Yeah. So a lot of news outlets picked up this paper that came out. And I'll read some of the headlines here. And bear in mind, these headlines are a, a little more clickbaity than what we're used to here on Paperboys, which is why it grabbed me when I saw these. So Space.com says, can we terraform Mars to make it Earth-like? Not anytime soon, study suggests. That, womp womp. That <laughs> yeah. was a pretty big spoiler. Yeah, so it's sounding like it's not promising. Another headline is, from popular science, Mars is missing a lot of this crucial terraforming ingredient. Wow, that's just total clickbait. I know. Why don't you just tell us? It's Yeah, that is such clickbait. It kind of makes me mad from a, a place like popular science that you would hope would be a little more have a little more integrity than that. A little more integrity. But what that reveals is something about this paper. It's They talk about a, a crucial ingredient for terraforming. What is it? I'm on the edge of my seat. It's like a Batman cliffhanger, man. <laughs> yeah, it's just like that. So it turns out actually the crucial ingredient is carbon dioxide. No. Yeah. No. And we just spent all that time saying how, oh, Mars has so much carbon dioxide, which is bad for humans. That's great. Yeah. Well... Or is it? Well, what this headline says is that it's missing a lot of it. So, okay. So one more headline. Business Insider Australia said, NASA just binned Elon Musk's plans to terraform Mars. That is just about the most disingenuous headline I've ever seen. Yeah, that sounds just inflammatory and not true. It is. So I'm going to rattle off a couple of reasons why. One is that this was not NASA, the institution, claiming, all right, our plan the plan anyone's plans to terraform mars are are done uh this is nasa operator please dial up elon musk for me real quick i mean that's what they make this sound like second of all elon musk is far from the first person to think that we could terraform mars and say that that's what we should be doing yeah so it's not like he's the man with the blueprints and 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 who's elon musk asking for nasa's permission in the first place (laughs) exactly he's he's doing exactly the opposite yeah. It should be Elon Musk bins NASA plans to... I don't even know. Yeah. No. So the paper itself was published in Nature Astronomy in the August 2018 issue. So actually, this got a ton of media attention back in like July or August or so when it first came out. And so I'm a little bit late to the game on this, but it's certainly only going to be debated more and more as 
we get closer to the ability to go to Mars. Yes, this paper will will have impact for a long time. It's a very big deal. And so, and we had so many other exciting papers to get to on Paper Boys. So sue me. I'm a month late, you know. Uh, Breaking news, we've landed on Mars and have already terraformed it. Ah, shoot. Well, hopefully you guys will still like this episode. Yeah. Um, So the paper is called Inventory of CO2 Available for Terraforming Mars. It's by a guy named Bruce Joukowsky and Christopher Edwards. Hmm. Okay. And so Bruce Joukowsky is head of the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics at the University of Colorado Boulder. But I also gather that he works very closely with NASA or even for NASA in their Astrobiological Institute. I don't know if that's the right name, but... Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a big group of researchers in NASA in collaboration with academia and yeah, industry. Yeah, so, so Bruce Joukowsky works through that collaboration, uh, but he's, he's actually faculty at University of Colorado Boulder. Okay. So that I, I only say that because all these articles were saying, oh, NASA just binned Elon Musk's plans. And it's, well, it's a researcher in collaboration with NASA who had data from NASA. So it's this like rough affiliation. Of yeah, yeah. Yeah. It would be funny if his paper says something like, the views expressed in this paper are solely the authors and do not express the views of NASA. No, it doesn't say that, but it also only says the word NASA once in the whole paper. And it's in the acknowledgments at the end. It just says this work was supported in part by NASA through the MAVEN and, and Mars Express satellites. So oh, I, think, I think what that really means just is just publicly that, available data. Yeah, he got data from these NASA satellites. Jeez, thanks, NASA. <laughs> thanks a lot. Uh, no, but so what you notice immediately about the title of this article is that it's inventory of CO2 available. The title of this article is not terraforming is not possible on Mars. Okay, so it's a much more quantitative breakdown of what's the status of CO2 and it is. So, what are the possibilities? Yeah, So and the reason why that's important is that there's two ways that they generally think of to approach terraforming Mars. One is that you could impre- increase the atmospheric pressure enough to the point where humans are able to operate outside without pressure suits. Wow. So okay. even if they couldn't breathe the atmosphere, you could still just wear like a face mask, but wear normal clothes and be able to operate. You know, then you could have farms and you could have all those kinds of things easily. Okay. The other is that you increase the temperature of the planet enough that liquid water can exist on the surface. And the way that you would do that is by releasing greenhouse gases to create like a runaway effect that would warm up the planet. Okay. So there are two main goals, if I understood correctly. One potentially being add enough CO2 to the atmosphere to increase the pressure to enable more human activities outside, outside of a space suit. Well, add enough gas, period. Gas, so period. So we'll, we'll okay. talk about CO2 in a minute. Second goal would be add CO2 or greenhouse gases similar to it to help bring up the temperature yes. so that water could exist on the surface. Yes. But so are these goals like mutually exclusive? Are they mutually coupled? No, I think the coupling comes in when you say that we're going to increase the pressure by adding greenhouse gases, which will warm the planet. Okay. So the only two gases that exist abundantly enough on Mars to look at feasibly for terraforming are CO2 and H2O water. Really? Yes. Okay. Otherwise, there, you know, there's not enough there's not enough nitrogen or argon or anything that we find very abundantly here to release into the atmosphere there. Now, it turns out that you can't release the water vapor first because it can't exist alone in the atmosphere without being blown away into space. 
Oh, man. Which is actually how Mars has lost its water in the first place. Okay, I was going to say, yeah, you'd just be releasing it out. So it turns out they have to release the CO2. So they've narrowed it down already through this whole selection process just to say, okay, let's look at releasing CO2. What this paper aims to do is find out where is all the CO2 stored on Mars and is it possible to release it into the atmosphere? Okay. And then once you answer those questions, you have to ask, and if we released it, would that even have an effect on the atmosphere? Wow, that's really interesting. That's amazing that from Earth, like my mind is boggled that they can even come up with estimates for this. It's cool, yeah. I mean, because we have rovers on the surface and we've got several satellites in orbit that are taking data not only of what's going on on the ground, but also what's going on in Mars's atmosphere. We actually have a very surprisingly good understanding of the geology of Mars or areology of Mars, actually, if you want to be technical. Areology. Areology is the equivalent of geology for Mars. Okay. I like it. Now, this paper is not the first one to speculate on the feasibility of terraforming Mars. Specifically, it, they reference um, two previous papers. One is a paper from 1991 by a person named McKay. Okay. And this paper is actually modeled almost exactly the same as that paper was, where they just aim to find all the different sources of CO2 and whether it's possible to release those into the atmosphere. But here we are 30 years after that, or 27 years after that, with much, much better data. And so this is like, this takes McKay's paper and just puts it on steroids. Okay. Yeah. You got your curiosity over there now. Maven's orbiting. Yeah. We got lots of cool resources now. Um, Mm -hmm. Insights on its way, which doesn't help this paper, but it's still exciting. But it'll help someone someday. So yeah. The other paper that they reference actually, and this is going to be a total total tangent, but I think that you'll like it. Okay. Um, The other paper they reference about terraforming is a Carl Sagan paper. Yes. That's the, awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. I don't know. Should I should I say what this paper's about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is going to be a side note. So if you don't like Carl Sagan, I guess skip ahead two minutes just or something. Plug like. your ears. Yeah, but plug who doesn't ears. like Carl Sagan? So his paper is called um, The Long Winter Model of Martian Biology, A Speculation. Man, it's just like Walt Whitman-esque, you know? Yeah. It's awesome. Like he's coming up with cool names for these theories. It's, it's a paper from, from 1971 in a journal called Icarus. And he's got this whole theory that Mars is undergoing this processional cycle that takes place over 50,000 years. And this cycle is that when Mars is at its closest point to the sun, sometimes its north pole is facing towards the sun, and sometimes its south pole is facing towards the sun. And that changes every, every 25,000 years. Okay. So he says that right now we're in a, in a time when Mars's south pole is facing towards the sun when it's closest when the planet is closest to the sun and as a result the south polar ice melts completely every summer or every yeah every summer in the south which you wouldn't really expect i mean we have antarctica and the north pole like the ice masses there don't go completely away in yeah. any season but on mars right now actually they they have two ice caps one on the north pole one on the south pole and currently in summer in the south the ice cap completely melts. It's gone. Wow. Wait, so when you say ice, are we talking CO2 ice, water ice? Both. It's mostly CO2 ice, but there's also water ice. Um, and that actually turns out is one of the sources of CO2 that they can release. 
Oh, really? But, okay. Yeah, but we'll get to that. So the South Pole melts every summer anyway, and the North Pole during its summer doesn't melt all the way because it's it's sort of facing away. It's it's not getting t- enough direct sunlight. Yeah, when it's summer there, it's not at the closest point to the sun, so it doesn't have this enhanced effect. But here's where it gets cool. So okay. what, what Carl Sagan is saying is that at these two extremes, the weather is too variable for organisms to really live and thrive, and that in between these periods, the weather would be very moderate and very hospitable on the planet and not be changing too much that you could actually have, like, he's saying there could actually be, like, critters. No. Yeah, and, like, spores and plants and actual hibernating animals that could live on Mars during those periods, That's which, of an- course, we wouldn't see now because it's it's one of these extreme periods. But he's saying that maybe those animals all sort of close up shop during the more extreme times, and there are, you know, bacterias and maybe little spores that do live through these long winters, but that we can't detect now because we don't really have, we haven't implemented the tools to do it. I just have this fabulous vision in my mind of like this hermit Walt Whitman on Mars, like living in a cave and then emerging like after the 12,500 processional years, You're- along with his little like mouse and rabbit critter friends. You're all about the Walt Whitman tonight. It's just Carl Sagan is so poetic. It makes me think about it. But he is. Maybe that's jo- where he he's went to live now. So, <laughs> joking aside, that is like that is actually like fascinating because I never had taken into account the long term orbital effects. Yeah, it's really cool. And so this paper, the Joukowsky paper that we're talking about here, cites this as sort of the one of the earliest really mainstream discussions on terraforming Mars and the capability of changing its, of its atmosphere changing in order to be more hospitable to life. When year did Carl Sagan come up with that paper? That was 1971. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, we had only just set foot on the moon and yeah, like that's a great far, perspective to put on that. Pretty just far-reaching insight. It totally To is. even take a stab at it and like get into a rough Yeah, I mean, park. did we even have like a rover on Mars yet? I don't think so in 1971. It's wild. Yeah. So, yeah, there you go. Carl Sagan is a total visionary. It's a really cool paper. We'll put it up on the website so you guys can can give it a read. It's it's surprisingly very easy to read, even as a non-scientist. I shouldn't say surprisingly because that's Carl Sagan's, uh, that's his whole thing is being a great science communicator. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to read it. Now, coming back to this Joukowsky paper, August 2018, no more 1971s. Okay. We're modern day. <laughs> We're in the modern day. What they do in this paper is systematically go through all the possible sources of CO2 that are currently trapped on Mars. And the idea is that if we were there, if humans were there, we could release these through a variety of mechanisms. The atmosphere would gain more CO2, pressure would go up, greenhouse effects would run away, surface would heat up, liquid water would exist. Okay. And they're just sort of assuming there's some method to extract it. These might be possible things, but we don't need to do it. Or do they address those specifically? That's a good question, actually. They specifically are talking about ways of extracting it that would be feasible with current or near future technologies. Okay. All right. They're not wielding the magic pen that you can just use as a Martian explorer to no, unleash no. all the CO2. And what's cool is they, they'll go through and they'll identify, well, here's how much CO2 there is that exists. But here's the amount that we could actually release reasonably. Okay. 
So we'll talk about those numbers as we go through each of these sources. I want to give a couple baseline numbers first so we can put everything into context as we go. Okay, let's do it. Baseline numbers are that Mars's atmosphere currently, the pressure is six millibars. So millibars is going to be the unit we talk about here. All you need to know is that one bar, which is 1,000 millibars, is basically what Earth's atmosphere is. Okay. So the the pressure, the ambient pressure here on Earth is 1,000 millibars. 1,000 millibars. Got it. The ambient pressure on Mars is six millibars. Okay. Way, way, way lower. Yeah. So in analyzing all these different sources to release CO2, they're going to look at it in terms of how many millibars of pressure would this add to the atmosphere. Okay. So they're doing like CO2 accounting. Yes, exactly. Well, and the paper is called Inventory of CO2. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah. So just remember remember that number. 1,000 millibars is where we're trying to get to. Or, okay. or somewhere on that order, right? Got it burned into my brain. Now, they have identified three places where CO2 could be trapped that we could try to release. One is, as you correctly guessed, in the CO2 ice that, it's, that is at the North Pole. And then there's also some, some CO2 trapped inside that ice. Uh, the second possible source is in adsorbed CO2 in the regolith. Adsorb. Adsorbed. Sort of like you're saying absorb, but with it's, a D. <laughs> yes, no, no B, just a D, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then the third possible source is carbonate minerals. Okay, hold on, hold on. What is adsorb? So you're going to get to that. So adsorption is like a mechanical bonding of CO2 to little grains of sand on Mars. But we'll get to that. Okay. Let's talk about the ice first. I'll let it go. Don't get ahead of yourself. That's really cool. All right, go ahead. So first, the first source I mentioned was this CO2 ice that's at the North Pole. So the South Pole melts away every, every summer. And so it doesn't make sense to say we're going to release that into the atmosphere because it already is part of the atmosphere. That six millibars already includes that. The North Pole, there's still a huge chunk of CO2 ice that gets left trapped every year. So if we were able to somehow melt all of that ice, we could release the CO2 into the atmosphere permanently. Okay. It's like the exact opposite problem that we're facing on Earth. Yes. If only we could get our ice caps to take all the CO2 in. And take it out of our atmosphere. Just take all this heat and send it on a rocket to Mars. Yeah. Um, no, so what they have done through these satellites that are orbiting Mars and observing this ice is they've, they've actually been able to identify how much CO2 is in the ice. Wow. And what they estimate is that of the frozen CO2, there's enough to double the atmospheric pressure of Mars to 12 millibars. Holy cow. It's interesting the way you phrase that because they're like... Doubling the atmospheric pressure of Mars is no small endeavor. I know that's a that's huge, huge difference. Yeah, but it actually get it actually only gets you to twelve millibars, and we need to get to six a millibars. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now there's another way that you can get CO two out of this ice, and this is really cool. What's that? It's this thing called clathrate. Clathrate. Yeah, I didn't know about this before the paper, but it's fascinating. What clathrate is is inside water ice. The H2O molecules form sort of a cage, and inside that cage is trapped a CO2 molecule. Whoa. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, so you could actually have inside this water ice all these trapped carbon dioxide molecules that are just sitting there, and they can't get out of the the cages formed by the H2O. Whoa. Okay, side question. Do we get clathrate on Earth? 
Yes, we do. I think that we do get clathrate on Earth, which is how we even know that it exists. Now, on Mars, they ca- they made the calculation in this paper that if the entire volume of both ice caps were completely clathrate, then melting that ice would release 150 millibars of CO2. That's a ton. That's a lot, right? But we're still like an eighth of what Earth's atmosphere is. Sure, but so I mentioned that that would be that's like best case scenario. That's best case. If the entire volume of both ice caps is completely clathrate, that's 150 millibars. Best case. Here, you ready for the dagger? Ah, uh, I don't. I mean, <laughs> just disappointment. But yeah. sure, okay, yeah. So there's actually no evidence that clathrate even exists on Mars. Oh, no. I know. It's just they they have just pointed out that it's theoretically possible. Okay. That it could exist. But, but they haven't found it. But they've actually found zero evidence for it actually existing. Damn. And they're looking for it. it. All right. Well. So that that's a huge bummer. Um, we just need to start putting up reward posters. Missing. Clathrate. <laughs> have you seen it? Yeah. Uh, if found, please release into atmosphere. So the reason that they're, they're looking at these polar caps as the first thing here is that they're at, it, that's where you can most easily release the CO2 because it's just melting ice. Like so we can melt ice. That's easy. Yeah, dense, densely located source. Just nuke it, right? Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the things that they've suggested here. Is really literally, yeah, you could literally just nuke the ice. I was just using that as a figure of speech, but no, okay, no, like literally, you could nuke the ice. Wow. Another thing that they've said is you could like sprinkle like a black dust over the ice so that it increases increases what's called its albedo, which is just how much light it absorbs versus how much it reflects. Okay. So if you sprinkle this black dust on it the ice will absorb more light, more heat, and just it'll melt. Like the way a blacktop is hotter than cement. Huh. So those are the sort of the feasible near future technologies that they're talking about to melt all this ice. All of that just sounds really hard. Yeah. But so even if we were to melt uh, the entire ice caps, that would still only give us an extra six millibars of pressure. So we're sitting at 12 millibars now after nuking the ice caps of Mars. <laughs> so extreme measures. A lot of good that did us. Yeah, extreme measures for 12 millibars. Okay. Now, second source, adsorbed CO2. This is the one I've been waiting for. Yeah, you can release your breath now, James. <laughs> <laughs> Breathe that CO2 out. 10 minutes later. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so adsorbed CO2. Adsorption is, like I said, it's when the CO2 molecules will have a mechanical bonding to these little grains of regolith, Mm -hmm. the soil on Mars. What sort of conditions does it take to form adsorbed CO2? That's a great question. It's actually temperature dependent. Oh, okay. So the the colder that it is, the more CO2 will adsorb into the regolith. Okay. Hmm. So the idea behind releasing it naturally becomes to heat the regolith up. Yeah, okay, so it adsorbs if it's cooler. If you reverse the process of adsorption, it goes to say they'll it just, heat They'll up. just bounce right off and they'll, they'll come out of the regolith. Yep. So they did a calculation showing that in the entire regolith of Mars, they estimate there's about 40 millibars worth of CO2 adsorbed. Wow. Which is good, but like you've pointed out, it doesn't, it's not going to make a huge dent. Yeah. Now, here's the second dagger. No. There's I'm a lot still, of... I'm still suffering from the first one. There's a lot of daggers in this. Oh. You're going to be like Caesar at the end of this one. <laughs> just full of holes. E2 Brutus. <laughs> yeah. E2 <Just>. Jokowski. <laughs> um, 
Okay. The Just way with it. <laughs> so the dagger is that they don't think it's really feasible to even release this CO2. Why not? Because to release it, you would have to heat all of that regolith. And it's dispersed across all of the regolith on all of Mars. But why don't we just nuke all of Mars? <laughs> so, well, that's, that's a rhetorical question. So, <laughs> so what they would, if they were going to do this, they would have to process all of the regolith, which would entail taking machines and physically injecting heat into the soil <laughs> across the entire planet. Let's just take this planet that we want to be our home and destroy it. Just make it a horrible wasteland of machinery and <laughs> and human development. Yeah. Hmm. So okay, that's totally that feasible. Doesn't sound feasible at all. Even if they were to rely on just the natural heating of the atmosphere to heat up the ground through conduction, they say that this this layer of regolith that has CO two is about a hundred meters thick. It would take ten thousand years for the heat to fully penetrate that layer of regolith oh man yeah so even if you got the atmosphere like really hot you wouldn't release that co2 for ten thousand years that's insane or it would really slowly over ten thousand years not feasible that's the conclusion they come to about the adsorbed co2 is that it's essentially impossible to release any significant amount of co2 adsorbed in the regolith okay so we got we're still sitting at that meager 12 millibars yeah. We've nuked the poles. We've taken a solid survey of the dirt and said, no way, Jose. I'm sitting here with two daggers in my chest. <laughs> James is bleeding out on the floor. Uh, oh, now man. this third source, carbonate minerals. Carbonate. There's a little bit of hope here. Okay. I'm, I'm optimistic. I got nothing else to lean on. So they used to think that carbonate mineral so mars used to actually have this very thick co2 atmosphere like it was it was one bar it used to be the same pressure as earth's really a long time ago okay and they've always wondered where did it go and for a long time they thought that that atmosphere had gone into these carbonate minerals which again i'm not an areologist but i gather it's just these rocks that form with all these all the carbon dioxide molecules somehow in the rock itself interesting okay so it's like you lose some of your atmosphere, the planet starts to cool, and then the CO2 starts bonding with the rocks. It, it goes into something. the rock. I, yeah, I, I won't claim to know the process. but Okay. So that's where they think that Mars's atmosphere may have gone. But they haven't really identified very clearly where all those deposits are. Hmm. Now, they have found some really good localized deposits that are sort of bubbled up at the surface. One notable one is called Nili Fosse, and so they take a good look at Nili Fosse here to show what impact it could have on the terraforming effort. They give one estimate, which is their, they say is their very unlikely estimate. It's the super optimistic, like they extrapolate out to way, way bigger than what they think it is probably true. They say that there's about 150 millibars worth of CO2 in Nili Fosse. Then they give a more likely but still very unlikely estimate oh, no. based on like kind of reasonable optimism, which is 12 millibars of CO2. That's 10 times less. Yeah. Now, here comes, here comes that dagger, James. Oh. You just pulled out the last one. Yeah, there's, just a, there's a nice warm little home for it. The realistic estimate of how much CO2 is housed in Nili Fosse, point two five millibars oh man no one wants to it's like they won't even give us an inch those martians no those martians are very stingy with their co2 
Dang. Point. Well, how much was it? I mean, less point than two five millibars. Oh, so we're sitting at what twelve point two five now? Yeah, we're not doing very well. Yeah, but so what they say is that there's a lot of deposits like Nilifase, and so if you extrapolate this across the whole planet, it's reasonable to assume that maybe there's about fifty millibars of of CO two that's sort of accessible to us. But then they draw that back down and say the maximum plausible amount to release from carbonate minerals is only 12 millibars. Okay. But so we're still talking about a a further doubling of what we've done. So we're up around 24, I think, millibars. But the problem is that to do that, you have to process all of those minerals. You have to literally go and you have to strip mine the entire nilifosate, which is like miles wide and, and long and like a kilometer deep and you need thousands of people there already like living there and integrated onto mars it it would be ridiculous to do even on earth now talk about doing it on another planet it's just not going to happen wow so that's why they draw their estimate down to 12 millibars because they say you know if we're going to really go ham on this that's probably as much as we could probably process not trying to get anybody's hopes up well here's where the hopes get up is that they say they think that there are these very deep carbonate deposits that are much deeper than what we could access now that could be storing up to one bar of CO2. Wow. So that could be where all the atmosphere went. This is so fascinating. Like, it's crazy because we know, you know, with Mars, it's like we know a lot, but there's still so much that is a mystery. And it's like, you know, if you were studying Earth the way we study Mars, you would have no idea that there's like huge oil deposits or like big underground aquifers or things like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, we had a whole episode on them maybe finding evidence for one lake on Mars. Yeah. Like, it's crazy what we don't know about the planet. Yeah. So these carbonate deposits could be down there holding one bar of CO2, but it's practically impossible for us to ever access them. That would be like a a very far advanced human species that is unrecognizable to us would have the technology to go release that CO2. Whoa. Okay. It's sci-fi. But just thinking about it, it's like you could imagine this world where carbon dioxide is like the new oil. Oh, yeah. It's like a really hot commodity. Yeah. Man, Steven Spielberg, if you're listening, I got copyright on that. It's actually cool. I read this book called Red Mars, which is about, it's a sci-fi book from the 90s about this group of colonists who were the first to go to Mars and then a bunch of more, you know, thousands more come. Mm -hmm. And their economy in this sort of black market side of things, their economy is that if you give me this thing, I will release X amount of nitrogen into the atmosphere. Really? Yeah. So they're all like holding nitrogen and then their way of exchanging things is saying, I'll release this much more nitrogen into the atmosphere if you do that. Whoa. Yeah. Because they're all they're all really on board with the cause of terraforming Mars. And Okay. So it's like... But it's this limited resource and so... That's interesting. That's a really interesting take. Yeah. Didn't mean to derail. I just thought that was a fascinating point. Yeah. About these huge carbon dioxide deposits. Yeah. So now the last thing they talk about here is that there is one mechanism for loss of CO2. So we've talked about where the CO2 is stored. We haven't really talked about how it is leaving and where we might lose it. Yeah. The mechanism here is that you literally lose it to space. It blows away. Okay. And so why doesn't that happen on Earth? If I understand correctly, it does not happen on Earth because we have a magnetic field. And the mechanism for loss at Mars is that these H2O and CO2 molecules will dissociate, releasing oxygen. And then that oxygen becomes ionized. From like the sun's rays and radiation? Yes, exactly. And then 
and then it is able to be blown away by the solar wind because it has it's charged. Oh, okay. So there's no like there's no magnetic field to protect Mars from the solar wind that's just Yeah. It. So exactly. These charged particles in a magnetic field become trapped. Like that's why we have the Van Allen radiation belt at Earth is those are just a bunch of trapped charged particles in our magnetic field that would otherwise just bombard us if we didn't have it. Would bombard us and also get blown away. And blown away. So at Mars, you don't have the same thing. Now, here's what's crazy. Uh, MAVEN and Mars Express, the two orbiters at Mars right now, mm-hmm. or two of the orbiters at Mars right now, have been measuring the rate of loss of oxygen from the atmosphere. Guess how much oxygen they're losing. I don't even have a ballpark guess. 1.1 millibars per year. Oh, uh, I wish I could put it in pressure terms, but what they say is the rate is that one. That probably po- doesn't even make sense to say it in pressure terms. No, it does make sense to say it in pressure terms. But what they say is uh, the rate is one point five kilograms per second. Whoa, which is a lot when you think about how little there already is there. Yeah, and how much that adds up over time. And they so a kilogram of a gas is it's a, a lot huge of gas. volume. Yes, yeah. and they actually have extrapolated that back through time to estimate how much has been lost in total. And they say that it's equivalent to one bar of CO2 that has been lost to space. Since? Like since... Like prehistoric Mars? Yes. They, they extrapolated back many millions of years, these loss rates that they're analyzing now. Wow. And they've calculated that Mars would have lost a full bar of CO2. Okay. Dang. And that can never be brought back. So that's not hidden in some rocks that they can process. That's just gone forever the universe yes so all these things combined they say that reasonably we could potentially raise the atmosphere to a pressure of 20 millibars that's the final number that they go with just 20 millibars remember we wanted a thousand Mm -hmm. they do a calculation and say that with the greenhouse effect this would result in a warming of less than 10 degrees celsius when they need 60 degrees celsius in order for liquid water to be stable they need an, sorry, they need an additional 60 degrees Celsius in order for water to be stable. Wow, so we're really far off the mark. Really far, yeah. And they're like, they really drive this point home. Like 20 millibars of atmosphere would not get us anything. They just say, they, they're basically saying straight up. Basically take all human resources available just to get those 20 millibars. And yeah, and you haven't changed the situation really much at all. Wow, but you know, it's like, this could be one of those papers where 50 years from now they look back and they're like, no one even thought it was in the realm of possible. And here we are. I so hope that's true. Yeah. I so hope it's true. That's got to be hard having everybody root against you when you're writing a paper like that. I know. And it's, it almost seems like now going, you know, going back to these news stories, it almost seems like that's why they glommed onto this is that it's this really pessimistic glass half empty kind of thing that they can put out there. Like, they know that it'll get attention from people going like, oh, no, but, oh, my future home. But none of these articles really bring in any sort of optimism about it. No. And, you know, maybe they're taking the tack of being ultra conservative, but also then it's like, you know, it's coming out just between you and me talking about how excited we are about the prospect of terraforming Mars. It, like, inspires people to try to prove them wrong or to think about other ideas. Yeah, totally. Hope I mean I really hope that that's the case. Yeah. There's actually this op-ed that I re- that I read about the news articles about this paper. I mean, this guy who wrote the op-ed, he he's really a paper boy at heart. 
Yeah, his his article is just exactly what we do. He had a little more vitriol than we do, but but he actually calls out this one article. I saved this headline for the end because this offended me. Even before I read this op-ed, I was mad at this. Yeah? Yeah, wired headline. Sorry, nerds. Terraforming might not work on Mars. Ooh, wired. Yeah, like... Aren't s- nerds your audience? Seriously, who do you think you are, wired? Like, are you kidding me? Man... That's rough. Yeah, that made me really mad. And so this guy rips into Wired. He also rips into Space.com, which was the, can we terraform Mars to make it more Earth-like? Not anytime soon, studies suggest. He rips into that one too. Wow. So what's he saying? I, his whole point is that it's, they're overly pessimistic, that these organizations who are dedicated to the pursuit of new science and what new science might offer us, they've too aggressively glommed onto the results of this study, which are about current technology. Oh, okay. They make no effort to say, well, in the future, we should be able to overcome this. And I think that people should be pursuing ways to overcome this. Like you said, instead, they really jump on the bandwagon of, ah, well, better pack our bags up and not try anymore. Yeah, yeah. Lacking a little bit of tenacity. But really, yeah, really all it's saying is like, if we wanted to try to go to Mars and terraform it tomorrow... We wouldn't be able to. Exactly. So we got to keep thinking and come up with new ways. Yeah. And I feel like that is the spirit of this paper, and which is why they just called it inventory of CO2 on Mars for terraforming purposes. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to say, here's what we could do now. And hopefully that would inspire more imaginative approaches. The same way the paper in 1991 was trying to do it with the best of the knowledge they had. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's really fascinating, Charlie. I'm really glad you brought that paper in. It's really cool to hear the analysis of it, even if we're not quite there for terraforming Mars. I'd like to take a moment to bring in a new feature on our podcast, which is the grad student highlight. Each week with our podcast, we're highlighting different graduate students across the country and their research to show you what cool stuff is going on at the universities around and also the cool people who are doing the research. This week, we're happy to bring in Jasmine Benjamin, at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. So take a listen to what she's working on. Hey, my name is Jasmine Benjamin. I'm a second year biomedical science PhD student in Dr. Elizabeth Stuhl's lab at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Our lab focuses primarily on membrane trafficking and protein degradation in the secretory pathway, but my project is focused on building an interaction network for an important secretory pathway protein. It is important to understand the interactions any gene or protein makes with other genes because this can lead to the understanding of why some diseases have varying phenotypes or even the mechanistic pathways that give rise to diseases. The secretory pathway itself is incredibly important because protein secretion is one of the many ways that cells can communicate with each other. Many people think that science is extremely difficult to understand, but it's really pretty simple to grasp the basics with a few well-drawn figures. I think that as a biomedical scientist, my peers and I owe it to the public to engage with them about what we do. Much of our research contributes to the development of medications and cures for diseases that affect the public, and I think that they should have at least a basic knowledge of something that could affect them. I love biology because it's the only science in which multiplication is the same thing as division. Wow, well, thank you, Jasmine Benjamin. I gotta say, protein secretion sounds a little bit gross, but that joke she tossed in there at the end, absolute winner. Yeah, (laughs) thanks so much for sending that in, Jasmine. Really cool to hear about your work and definitely check out more about Jasmine on our website in the grad student highlight page. You can also find a page for this episode on there where we will be posting 
uh, Bruce Tchaikovsky's paper. We'll put up Carl Sagan too. We'll put up McKay. We'll put up Wired's crappy art. No, we'll put up the op-ed about Wired. Also, if you're listening, please do me a huge favor. Leave a review on iTunes if you can. I would be so thrilled if you could do that. Even if you hate the show, give us one star. I don't care. Tell us. Just tell us. Yes, please do. Also, you can tell us how much you hate the show on Twitter, (laughs) at PaperboysPod is our handle, uh, or Gmail, PaperboysPod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, It's a real pleasure for us to bring this out every single week, and we hope you enjoyed it. Please join us next week for another exciting edition of Paper Boys. Thanks for listening.